morning, everyone. Great to be with you this morning. We're seeing some sunny days these days. It's uh, putting me in a good mood, actually not having to deal with too much rain uh, these days. Uh, my name is Young, pastor here at New Life, if we haven't met yet. Um, as KK mentioned, we are all about uh, the gospel of grace here, sharing the good news with one another and glorifying God through that. Um, I think I saw some parents in the parents' room earlier. Um, it's mostly just kids now, but yeah, just wanted to say that we have had some sound issues in the parents' room um, due to that rain, that aforementioned rain. And so uh, the sound system in there is damaged, but they are working on replacing that. Uh, but as you can imagine, it's quite a big job. It's built into the walls and it's quite expensive, so it will be a little bit of time. So we do ask for your patience. Uh, but we do love having the children in here with us as well. Um, and so don't feel uh, awkward about that at all, even if they make you know, little squealing noises like that. Uh, we do welcome all that. Uh, we do ask that everyone keeps their masks on, I guess, to keep the children safe as well through that. Now, if it's your first time uh, coming to New Life, you've come at a very uh, good time uh, for New Life as well as uh, we begin to celebrate uh, Hezun's 30th year anniversary. I believe that's uh, coming next week, but we are starting that celebration tomorrow uh, with some special night services uh, from the Korean side. So it is uh, Korean-centric. So if your Korean isn't that great, you might have a little bit of trouble with it. But along with that is also New Life's 20th year anniversary as well. So 20 years of glorifying God in the gospel of grace. Uh, With that in mind, how about we pray together first in thanksgiving for God's faithfulness uh, over these years and many more. Let's also pray that his passion would be our passion uh, to share God's faithfulness with the world. Let's pray. Uh, Father, as we reflect upon uh, the past 30 years of your faithfulness to Zezun and indeed to us in our lives, Lord, um, however old we might be, Lord, we see your hand of faithfulness throughout all these years and many more, God. You've been faithful to us, you've been faithful to the previous generations, and you've been faithful for so many more. So when we think upon these things, Lord, we can see that you are faithful and you will be faithful for the years to come. It's in this that we stake our hope knowing, Lord, that you're our rock of salvation, that you will not be moved, you will not be shaken, and that's what we place our faith in. Not in our own ability to muster faith, but our faith is in the ones that we keep our eyes upon. Thank you, Lord, for sending your son uh, to be that foundational hope in our lives, Lord, that even as the world is shaken, that we ourselves will not be shaken. We do ask, Lord, that you would keep our hearts, Lord, uh, that you would help us, Lord, uh, to constantly seek you, to be constantly transformed and renewed by your grace, and to seek uh, to make your passion our passion as well, Lord, as we look to the outsiders of our society, and indeed the outsiders within our own four walls as well, Lord, uh, that we might be able to share in your gospel, your good news of grace to this world, God. We pray, Lord, for our service today, God, that you would open up our ears open up our eyes, that we might be able to examine your word together, that we might be transformed by it, that we might really receive uh, the message that you have for us. Be with us, guide us by your Holy Spirit, give us great wisdom, and help us, Lord, to be transformed by you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we are starting a new series today in the book of Ruth, so you can see that artwork on screen there. Uh, It's titled, Loving the Outsider. Loving the Outsider. And from the title, you can probably tell Now, one of the big things that uh, the book of Ruth speaks to us about 
is an examination of the outsiders of our society and what that means to us in a Christian context as well. What does it mean when we talk about the outsiders of society in a Christian context? And we can see through the book how uh, behind the scenes and above it all, because you know, there's not a lot of explicit mentions of the Lord uh, through this book, but we can see behind the scenes and above it all how God interacts with these so-called outsiders. So if you've ever felt like an outsider, you know, I've definitely felt it throughout all of school, you know, all of my life, I think. If you've ever interacted with an outsider, or if your desire is to grow in a heart of empathy and identify with outsiders, then Ruth will comfort you, it'll challenge you, and it'll transform you as well. So from the opening line of the book of Ruth, you can see the context and the time period that this is taking place. And this is really important for our understanding of Ruth. It's the times that the people were living in were not good. They were not good. You know, we can kind of gloss over this because if you read through the book of Ruth, you know, it's kind of a heartwarming story. Like, it feels like a bit of a daytime television drama. You're like, oh, you know, Ruth and, and Boaz, so sweet. But the times that they were living in, not good. It's the time of the judges, the opening line tells us, when everyone just decided for themselves what was good or bad, right or wrong. It was before the time of kings in Israel, and so before that time. And as you are turning to our passage this morning, you know, perhaps if you have a paper Bible, this might be more possible, but I think most of you guys have uh, phone electronic Bibles. You might have seen the final verse of the book of Judges, which comes right before the book of Ruth. It reads this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. Now, if you think that the past few years of just you know, online vitriol and just polarization were bad for us you know, in our modern context, just amplify that to the degree that at this time that we're reading about, there's no governing body, there's no leadership, everyone just decided for themselves what's right or wrong. <laughs> we see this in today's society, right? When people decide for themselves what's right or wrong, all hell breaks loose. It's just, you know, horrible, right? In a land with a power vacuum, might makes right. Like, when there's no leadership, whoever's the strongest, they just make the rules. It was the worst of times. There's a noticeable downward spiral if you read through the book of Judges in its entirety, and it happens in cycles. I recommend that if you read the book of Judges in its entirety that you break it apart and, you know, watch something nice in between so you don't feel depressed afterwards. Uh, first, this is the cycle, okay? First, the people rebel against God and turn to sin. In some way or another, they turn to idolatry. Because of the evil in the land, because God is just, he acts in judgment against his people. And the people kind of wake up. They're like, oh, we've done so, so much wrong. The people repent cry out to the Lord, and then God sends a deliverer to rescue his people so that they could experience shalom, they could experience some measure of rest for at least a little while. As Judges goes on though, it just gets worse and worse. The people stop repenting. You know, all of these judgments come and the people are just like, ah, you know, whatever. They just stop repenting, and not only this, but the deliverers themselves get worse and worse as well. 
the ones that actually arrived to save the people also spiral downwards. So by the time that we meet the final judge, you guys know his name, Samson, it's at the lowest point that it could possibly be. Samson, the judge, and the deliverer, the Nazarite. We read about this guy. He breaks every vow that's expected of him. And this is supposed to be someone that was set apart from birth. But Samson is representative of the people that he was sent to deliver because the people have all lost their way. The time of the judges was a horrible, dark time to live through. And this is the time and place where we meet Elimelech, Naomi, and their two sons, Malon and Kilion. So read with me here, Ruth 1, 1 to 2. During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. The name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the fields of Moab and settled there. So in these dark times, a famine hits the land, and now because we know the context, we know that it results from the unfaithfulness of the people towards God. And ironically, this leaves Bethlehem, whose very name means house of bread with no food in the land. This might be hard for us to imagine, like we've been hungry before, but we haven't been to this, this degree. We live in relative wealth and abundance here in Sydney, since you know, supermarket shelves are almost always stocked, right? But people were starving. There's a scarcity of food, people are malnourished, they're dying. And so Elimelech has a choice to make for his family. Either he could stay, he could mourn the sin of the people around him, continue to place his trust in God to provide for his family, or he could leave the promised land. And we read that he chooses to leave and to head to Moab, where he had heard that there was food. Now, you might have heard the phrase promised land before. You might have heard that term, and this comes from the exodus of God's people from Egypt when he brought them out of Egypt to the land of Canaan as a special place for them to dwell, the promised land. Elimelech was called to live in Bethlehem. It's a little bit different from our context where we're just born in Sydney or you know, maybe we move here and we're very free to go wherever we need to, right? But Elimelech was actually called to live in Bethlehem. Moab, where Elimelech chooses to move his family, is known to God's people in several different ways. So one, the people who had been born, this is Moab, these were the people that had been born out of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his oldest daughter. And we see that in Genesis 19, really gross. During the Exodus, we also read that Moab's king had hired this mercenary to come and place a curse on God's people as they escaped Egypt. And we read that in Numbers 22 to 24. Now, only recently, in the time of Judges, if you just read through the book of Judges, you read this, Moab's king Eglon had subjugated the people of God, had oppressed them. Moab's not a good place. In the dark time, they move to a place of darkness. So why were they going to Moab? Well, Elimelech went 
because this was the time of the judges. There was no king in the land, so he did whatever seemed right to him. Elimelech, whose very name means, my God is king. He makes it clear from his actions that there was no king in his heart. He only cared to listen to his own judgments. He weighed up what he believed would provide him and his family with the most comfort and security. And from what he saw around him, the house of bread was empty and his best prospects lay in a land of sin. Now what about for us? What are the choices that we make? What are the thoughts that factor into these choices? You know, perhaps you found yourself doubting God's faithfulness to his church, feeling like the grass is greener on the other side, not caring to see how you can join in with God and what he's doing in the church. Or is it even bigger than this? You know, far more central to your identity itself. Do we, like Elimelech, with his name, bear the name of Christian only in name alone? And yet our Christ factors very little into the decisions that we make into our day-to-day lives. The choices that we make speak as loudly as Elimelech's in the book of Ruth. Now from here, the family story kind of continues fairly uneventfully in verse two with the family just kind of existing in Moab. They're just there. In the original Hebrew, verse two is very interesting. It reads, they went to the fields of Moab and they were there. That's just it. You know, they must have had enough food for the family to settle, so they coasted through their lives, seemingly no real plan for what would happen next after their settlement. They were just there. But one day, everything changes. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died and she was left with her two sons. Just as the family just kind of existed in Moab, one day, Elimelech just stops existing. Not in honor, not even in just dishonor, but in obscurity. We don't even know how he dies. We just read that he does. And Elimelech's death means, did I hit this? Means his family finds itself at another fork in the road. Do they turn and go back home to the promised land and to their God? Or do they go on staying in Moab? Read with me the next part. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah and the second was named Ruth. So life continues on from them, for them in Moab, and they take Moabite women as wives. If you've read through the first few books of the Bible, you read that the Israelites, they've been commanded not to do this. They've been commanded not to do so in Deuteronomy chapter seven, but without plans to return to their homeland. They're looking around, they're getting older. Perhaps they're seeing everyone keeps getting married. They get announcements about it at church every week. And they think, who else is there to even marry? I think I'll just marry these Moabite women. And little by little, the family's disobedience to God deepens in ways that are not immediately obvious because we might not really know the history or the context of what we're reading. But as we get to know God's word, 
we see the little nuances, the little ways in which it becomes easier and easier to compromise. This family, their footsteps away from the Lord, they seem small at first, just little. It seems to be the best thing for the sake of their family. And then one day they look around and they see how far from God they truly were. Remaining far from God requires so little effort. For Elimelech, moving to Moab was a deliberate choice, and it must have been a really hard one at that. It's always difficult to pack up and leave your home, especially if you're going to a foreign land, especially if you're going far. But to remain in Moab after his death for his family was just a path of least resistance. It was just the easiest thing that they could possibly do. Ten years go by. After they lived in Moab about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and the woman was left without her two children and without her husband. One day, Naomi is the only one left from her family, the ones that left Bethlehem and moved to Moab. Both her sons, Malon and Kilion, die. Naomi is left in this strange land. No family, no one to care for her, no food. With no family members to work the land, she has no one to provide for her. There's no welfare program for a foreigner, especially someone considered an enemy of the land. She was faced with the same situation that had seen her leave from Moab in the first place. And so Naomi, broken and destitute, must now turn and head back home. She'd heard that there was food in the land again. Now, what Naomi doesn't realize at this point, and what we might not get without context as well, is that for there to be food in Bethlehem again, something must have happened. Something must have happened. Remember our setting. This is a time of the judges, where people had faced judgment for their sin, for turning away from God. And so for there to be food in the land again meant that the people had repented. This had happened back in her homeland. People had repented, and so God had restored his blessing upon the land. And this is crucial for our understanding of Naomi. Naomi is representative of all of God's people. This is our story. Though she left rebelling against God's word and choosing for herself what seemed right, she now has the opportunity to return to repent and to find God is more than willing. He's been waiting to forgive her. Just like with the land, he's been waiting to bless the land again. Grace is what God wants to give. He's just, so he judges sin, but God always wants to restore his wandering children to himself. Now, what do we learn from all this new life? What do we actually get from this opening five verses of Ruth? How do Elimelech and Naomi's experiences compare with ours today? In the modern West, we don't really see such direct displays of judgment anymore. You know, like, you sin, and God doesn't take away all your food from your pantry, right? We're still eating well. We don't see direct displays of judgment and blessing like we did, but the people of God at the time of Judges, 
they uniquely experienced these blessings and these curses. And these things pointed forward. They foreshadow for us the reality of what's going to come in the future, the final rewards and judgments that are going to come at harvest time, at Jesus' return. But regardless, the way of unfaithfulness is today, just as it was back in that time, the way of death. If it weren't for the grace of God in his son Jesus Christ, we would all end up like Elimelech, Malon, and Kilion. We'd be victims of our own foolish choices, dead and buried in a strange land, forgotten and lost in obscurity. When we read the book of Ruth, we don't read it while treating people like Elimelech and Naomi like outsiders to ourselves. They're the same as us. We're the same as them. They're just like us. How often do we leave the bread of life for the sake of what we think is a better option elsewhere? God's grace is far above our rebellion. He calls us Naomi's back home. He welcomes us in by having Jesus take our place. And unlike Elimelech, who left the famine in the promised land to try and find his own way. Jesus leaves the glories of heaven, the place of perfect peace and harmony by his Father's side, and he makes a way for us. He tells us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. His grace is not only for those who have been outsiders either, but also for us who have turned away from him and rebelled. Now, there's going to be times in your life when you look out at all that you're doing, all that you pour yourself into, and you realize that you've gone far from it. Very similar to what Elimelech's family must have felt at his death. Perhaps now is that moment where you can examine yourself, where you can reflect, and look around you at the empty fields of Moab. If that's the case, let God remove the things in your life that you've placed your trust in instead of him. And why don't we pray together? I'll give you a moment to pray, first for yourself, and then I'll pray for us.
Father, as we read through the book of Ruth, and as we read Naomi's story, as we read Ruth's story, as we read about Elimelech and his family, would you help us, Lord, to taste and see that you are good, that you have grace in mind for us. We want to read this story and be tantalized by your goodness, to recognize, Lord, how scandalous you are in giving your son on behalf of us. In our own understanding, Elimelech made the right choice, but in your wisdom, you reveal our foolishness in depending upon the things that we can see rather than the things of faith. You have been faithful for generations and generations. Even as you've been faithful for 30 years here at Sesun, even as you've been faithful for many more years to our parents and our parents' generations and the generations before that, you've been faithful from the very beginning. From before time even began, you had us in your mind. You knit us together in our mother's wombs. And you know us. You know when we sit, you know when we lie down. You know our way even before we take it. Even when we awaken, you are there and you've been waiting graciously for us. As we read about the way that you restore grace to people like Naomi, to outsiders like Ruth, as we think about the Israelites and the way that you bring blessing upon the land when they turn and repent, would you help us to see that you have the same in mind for us? We are those that go into rebellion day by day. We are those that seek our own way, that turn from you, and yet there you are. Always there, always waiting for us to turn, to seek you, that you might restore us to your side. You have that fatherly love for us, a love that perhaps we've never experienced in our lives. And if we haven't, would you help us to place our trust in you that we might be able to experience this love for the first time, indeed to taste and see that you are good. And if we have tasted this love before, and yet we've still chosen our own way, would you show us, Lord, that it's not too late? that we can turn back to you, that you have a great love and great grace for us. Your patience has not run out, but you desire to gather us to you. And so we ask that you would do that, that you would turn our hearts to you once again, that you'd help us, Lord, to turn away from the idols of this world, the things that we've placed our trust in, the things that we find to be more enjoyable, and help us to see that we will only be fully satisfied permanently in you. We want to love you. Let our lives reflect this prayer to you, that we might live out this prayer, that we might live out complete devotion to who you are. Be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.